Sorry, I keep dropping you guys on cliffhangers, but <laughs> unfortunately, that's just how this uh, book is working out so far. I um, hope you guys are enjoying it, um, and yeah, if you want to catch some Sherlock action while you're waiting for the next episode, you can always check out the backlist, or you can go to wherever good audiobooks are sold, and you can purchase the five-pack of Sherlock audiobooks that we have put together here at Another World, which is pretty epic, if, you, if I do say so <laughs> myself. So five full Sherlock Holmes audiobooks, all uh, basically for the price of one. <laughs> Uh, audiobook which is pretty crazy I can't remember I think it's like 30 hours worth of content which is incredible so go check that out um, I think I put a link in the show notes but if not really just anywhere that you buy audiobooks uh, you can probably pull it up I, I don't think they're on audible um, necessarily audible is kind of strict with how they let books in and stuff which is kind of obnoxious but uh, anywhere else you Google Books uh, Kobo um, anywhere that you get audiobooks, you can find those, and it's a great way to support the podcast, too. I would really appreciate it. You can also request it from your library, which is pretty cool as well if you want the full version, or you can just listen to it on the backlist of the podcast. So lots of options for you. All right, without further ado, let's get into the second half of this chapter of The Return of Sherlock Holmes. I found that country pub which I had already recommended to your notice, and there I made my discreet inquiries. I was in the bar, and a garrulous landlord was giving me all that I wanted. Williamson is a white-bearded man, and he lives alone with a small staff of servants at the hall. There is some rumour that he is, or has been, a clergyman, but one or two incidents of his short residence at the hall struck me as peculiarly unecclesiastical. I have already made some inquiries at a clerical agency, and they tell me that there was a man of that name in orders, whose career has been a singularly dark one. The landlord further informed me that there are usually weekend visitors. A warm lot, sir, at the hall, and especially one gentleman with a red moustache, Mr. Woodley by name, who was always there. We had got as far as this, when who should walk in but the gentleman himself, who had been drinking his beer in the tap-room, and had heard the whole conversation. Who was I, and what did I want? What did I mean by asking questions? He had a fine flow of language, and his adjectives were very vigorous. He added a string of abuse by a vicious backhander, which I failed to entirely avoid. The next few minutes were delicious. It was a straight left against a slogging ruffian. I merged as you see me. Mr. Woodley went home in a cart. So ended my country trip, and it must be confessed that, however enjoyable, my day on the Surrey border has not been much more profitable than your own. The Thursday brought us another letter from our client. "'You will not be surprised, Mr. Holmes,' said she, "'to hear that I am leaving Mr. Carruthers' employment. "'Even the high pay cannot reconcile me to the discomforts of my situation. "'On Saturday I come up to town, and I do not intend to return.' Mr. Corrothers has got a trap, and so the dangers of the lonely road, if there ever were any dangers, are now over. As to the special cause of my leaving, it is not merely the strained situation with Mr. Carruthers, but it is the reappearance of that odious man, Mr. Woodley. He was always hideous, but he looks more awful than ever now, for he appears to have had an accident, and he is much disfigured. I saw him out of the window, but I am glad to say I did not meet him. He had a long talk with Mr. Carruthers, who seemed much excited afterwards. Woodley must be staying in the neighbourhood, for he did not sleep here, and yet I caught a glimpse of him again this morning, slinking about in the shrubbery. I would sooner have a savage wild animal loose about the place. I loathe and fear him more than I can say. How can Mr. Carruthers endure such a creature for a moment? However, all my troubles will be over on Saturday.' 
So I trust, Watson, so I trust, said Holmes gravely. There is some deep intrigue going on round that little woman, and it is our duty to see that no one molests her upon that last journey. I think, Watson, that we must spare time to run down together on Saturday morning, and make sure that this curious and inclusive investigation has no untoward ending. I confess that I had not up to now taken a very serious view of the case, which had seemed to me rather grotesque and bizarre than dangerous. That a man should lie in wait for and follow a very handsome woman is no unheard-of thing, and if he had so little audacity that he not only dared not address her, but even fled from her approach, he was not a very formidable assailant. The ruffian Woodley was a very different person, but except on one occasion he had not molested our client, and now he visited the house of Carruthers without intruding upon her presence. The man on the bicycle was doubtless a member of those weekend parties at the hall of which the publican had spoken, but who he was or what he wanted was as obscure as ever. It was the severity of Holmes's manner, and the fact that he slipped a revolver into his pocket before leaving our rooms, which impressed me with the feeling that tragedy might prove to lurk behind this curious train of events. A rainy night had been followed by a glorious morning, and the heath-covered countryside, with the glowing clumps of flowering gorse, seemed all the more beautiful to eyes which were weary of the duns and drabs and slate greys of London. Holmes and I walked along the broad, sandy road, inhaling the fresh morning air and rejoicing in the music of the birds and the fresh breath of the spring. From a rise on the road on the shoulder of Crooksbury Hill, we could see the grim hall bristling out from amidst the ancient oaks, which, old as they were, was still younger than the building which they surrounded. Holmes pointed down the long tract of road which wound a reddish-yellow band between the brown of the heath and the budding green of the woods. Far away, a black dot, we could see a vehicle moving in our direction. Holmes gave an exclamation of impatience. "'I've given a margin of half an hour,' said he. "'If that is her trap, she must be making for the earlier train. I fear, Watson, that she will be past Charlington before we can possibly meet her.' From the instant that we passed the rise, we could no longer see the vehicle— but we hastened onward at such a pace that my sedentary life began to tell upon me, and I was compelled to fall behind. Holmes, however, was always in training, for he had inexhaustible stores of nervous energy upon which to draw. His springy step never slowed until suddenly, when he was a hundred yards in front of me, he halted, and I saw him throw up his hand with a gesture of grief and despair. At the same instant, an empty dog-cart, the horse cantering, the reins trailing, appeared round the curve of the road and rattled swiftly towards us. "'Too late, Watson! Too late!' cried Holmes, as I ran panting to his side. "'Fool that I was not to allow for that earlier train! "'It's abduction, Watson! Abduction! Murder! Heaven knows what! "'Block the road! Stop the horse! That's right. "'Now jump in, and let us see if I can repair the consequences of my own blunder!' We had sprung into the dog-cart, and Holmes, after turning the horse, gave it a sharp cut with the whip, and we flew back along the road. As we turned the curve, the whole stretch of road between the hall and the heath was opened up. I grasped Holmes' arm. "'That's the man!' I gasped. A solitary cyclist was coming towards us. His head was down and his shoulders rounded as he put every ounce of energy that he possessed onto the pedals. He was flying like a racer. Suddenly, he raised his bearded face, saw us close to him, and pulled up, springing from his machine." That coal-black beard was in singular contrast to the pallor of his face, and his eyes were as bright as if he had a fever. He stared at us and at the dog-cart. Then a look of amazement came over his face. "'Hello! Stop there!' he shouted, holding his bicycle to block our road. "'Where did you get that dog-cart? Pull up, man!' 
he yelled, drawing a pistol from his side pocket. Pull up, I say, or by George, I'll put a bullet into your horse. Holmes threw the reins into my lap and sprang down from the cart. You're the man we want to see. Where is Miss Violet Smith? He said in his quick, clear way. That's what I'm asking you. You're in her dog cart. You ought to know where she is. We met the dog cart on the road. There was no one in it. We drove back to help the young lady. Good Lord, good Lord, what shall I do? cried the stranger in an ecstasy of despair. They've got her, that hellhound Woodley and the blackguard parson. Come, man, come, if you really are her friend. Stand by me and we'll save her if I have to leave my carcass in the Charlington wood. He ran distractedly, his pistol in his hand, toward a gap in the hedge. Holmes followed him, and I, leaving the horse grazing beside the road, followed Holmes. "'This is where they came through,' said he, pointing to the marks of several feet upon the muddy path. "'Hello, stop a minute. Who's this in the bush?' It was a young fellow, about seventeen, dressed like an ulster, with leather cords and gaiters. He lay upon his back, his knees drawn up, a terrible cut upon his head. He was insensible but alive. A glance at his wound told me that it had not penetrated the bone. "'That's Peter, the groom,' cried the stranger. "'He drove her. The beasts have pulled him off and clubbed him. Let him lie. We can't do him any good, but we may save her from the worst fate that can befall a woman.' We ran frantically down the path, which wound among the trees. We had reached the shrubbery which surrounded the house when Holmes pulled up. "'They didn't go to the house. Here are their marks on the left. Here, beside the laurel bushes.' Ah, I said so. As he spoke, a woman's shrill scream, a scream which vibrated with a frenzy of horror, burst from the thick green clump of bushes in front of us, and ended suddenly on its highest note with a choke and a gurgle. This way, this way, they are in the bowling alley, cried the stranger, darting through the bushes. Ah, the cowardly dogs! Follow me, gentlemen! Too late! Too late by the living jingo! We had broken suddenly into a lovely glade of greensward, surrounded by ancient trees. On the farther side of it, under the shadow of a mighty oak, there stood a singular group of three people. One was a woman, our client, drooping and faint, a handkerchief round her mouth. Opposite her stood a brutal, heavy-faced, red-moustached young man, his gaitered legs parted wide, one arm akimbo, the other having a riding crop, his whole attitude suggestive of triumphant bravado. Between them, an elderly, grey-bearded man, wearing a short surplice over a light tweed suit, had evidently just completed the wedding service, for he pocketed his prayer book as we appeared, and slapped the sinister bridegroom upon the back in jovial congratulation. "'They're married!' I gasped. "'Come on!' cried our guide. "'Come on!' He rushed across the glade, Holmes and I at his heels. As we approached, the lady staggered against the trunk of the tree for support. Williamson, the ex-clergyman, bowed to us with mock politeness, and the bully, Woodley, advanced with a shout of brutal and exultant laughter. "'You can take your beard off, Bob,' said he. "'I know you right enough. Well, you and your pals have come just in time for me to be able to introduce you to Mrs. Woodley.' Our guide's answer was a singular one. He snatched off the dark beard which had disguised him and threw it on the ground, disclosing a long, sallow, clean-shaven face below it. Then he raised his revolver and covered the young ruffian, who was advancing upon him with his dangerous riding-crop swinging in his hand. "'Yes,' said our ally. "'I am Bob Carruthers, and I'll see this woman righted if I have to swing for it. 
I told you what I'd do if you molested her, and by the Lord, I'll be as good as my word. You're too late. She's my wife. No, she's your widow. His revolver cracked, and I saw the blood spurt from the front of Woodley's waistcoat. He spun round with a scream and fell upon his back, his hideous red face turning suddenly to a dreadful, mottled pallor. The old man, still clad in his surplice, burst into such a string of foul oaths as I have never heard, and pulled out a revolver of his own, but before he could raise it, he was looking down the barrel of Holmes's weapon. "'Enough of this,' said my friend coldly. "'Drop that pistol. Watson, pick it up. Hold it to his head. Thank you. You, Carruthers, give me that revolver. We'll have no more violence. Come, hand it over.' "'Who are you, then?' My name is Sherlock Holmes. Good Lord! You have heard of me, I see. I will represent the official police until their arrival. Here, you! He shouted to the frightened groom, who had appeared at the edge of the glade. Come here, take this note as hard as you can ride to Farnham. He scribbled a few words upon a leaf from his notebook. Give it to the superintendent at the police station. Until he comes, I must detain you all under my personal custody. The strong, masterful personality of Holmes dominated the tragic scene, and all were equally puppets in his hands. Williamson and Carruthers found themselves carrying the wounded Woodley into the house, and I gave my arm to the frightened girl. The injured man was laid on his bed, and at Holmes's request I examined him. I carried my report to where he sat in the old tapestry-hung dining-room with his two prisoners before him. "'He will live,' said I. "'What?' cried Carruthers, springing out of his chair. I'll go upstairs and finish him first. Do you tell me that that angel is to be tied to Roaring Jack Woodley for life? You need not concern yourself about that, said Holmes. There are two very good reasons why she should, under no circumstances, be his wife. In the first place, we are very safe in questioning Mr. Williamson's right to solemnize a marriage. I have been ordained, cried the old rascal and also unfrocked. Once a clergyman, always a clergyman. I think not. How about the license? We had a license for the marriage. I have it here in my pocket. Then you got it by trick. But in any case, a forced marriage is no marriage. But it is a very serious felony, as you will discover before you have finished. You'll have time to think the point out during the next ten years or so, unless I am mistaken. As to you, Corrothers, you would have done better to keep your pistol in your pocket. I begin to think so, Mr. Holmes, but when I thought of all the precaution I had taken to shield this girl, for I loved her, Mr. Holmes, and it is the only time that ever I knew what love was, it fairly drove me mad to think that she was in the power of the greatest brute and bully in South Africa, a man whose name is a holy terror from Kimberley to Johannesburg. Why, Mr. Holmes, you'll hardly believe it, but ever since that girl has been in my employment, I never once let her go past this house where I knew that rascal was lurking, without following her on my bicycle, just to see that she came to no harm. I kept my distance from her, and I wore a beard, so that she should not recognize me, for she is a good and high-spirited girl, and she wouldn't have stayed in my employment long if she had thought that I was following her about the country roads. Why didn't you tell her of the danger? Because, then again, she would have left me, and I couldn't bear to face that. Even if she couldn't love me, it was a great deal to me, just to see her dainty form about the house, and to hear the sound of her voice. Well, said I, 
You call that love, Mr. Carruthers, but I should call it selfishness. Maybe the two things go together. Anyhow, I couldn't let her go. Besides, with this crowd about, it was well that she should have someone near to look after her. Then, when the cable came, I knew they were bound to make a move. What cable? Carruthers took a telegram from his pocket. That's it, said he. It was short and concise. The old man is dead. Hmm, said Holmes. I think I see now how things worked, and I can understand how this message would, as you say, bring them to a head. But while you wait, you might tell me what you can. The old reprobate with the surplus burst into a volley of bad language. By heaven, said he, if you squeal on us, Bob Carruthers, I'll serve you as you serve Jack Woodley. You can bleat about the girl to your heart's content, but that's your own affair. But if you round on your pals to this plain-clothes copper, it will be the worst day's work that ever you did. Your reverence need not be excited, said Holmes, lighting a cigarette. The case is clear enough against you, and all I ask is a few details for my private curiosity. However, if there's any difficulty in your telling me, I'll do the talking and then you will see how far you have a chance of holding back your secrets. In the first place, three of you came from South Africa on this game. You, Williamson, you, Carruthers, and Woodley. Lie number one, said the old man. I never saw either of them until two months ago, and I've never been in Africa in my life, so you can put that in your pipe and smoke it, Mr. Busybody Holmes. What he says is true, said Carruthers. Well, well, two of you came over. His reverence is your own homemade article. You had known Ralph Smith in South Africa. You had reason to believe he would not live long. You found out that his niece would inherit his fortune. How's that, eh? Carruthers nodded, and Williamson swore. She was next of kin, no doubt, and you were aware that the old fellow would make no will. Couldn't read or write, said Carruthers. So you came over, the two of you, and hunted up the girl. The idea was that one of you would marry her, and the other have a share of the plunder. For some reason, Woodley was chosen as a husband. Why was that? We played cards for her on the voyage. He won. I see. You got the young lady into your service, and there Woodley was to do the courting. She recognized the drunken brute that he was, and would have nothing to do with him. Meanwhile, your arrangement was rather upset by the fact that you had yourself fallen in love with the lady. You could no longer bear the idea of this ruffian owning her. No, by George, I couldn't. There was a quarrel between you. He left you in a rage and began to make his own plans independently of you. It strikes me, Williamson, there isn't very much that we can tell this gentleman, cried Carruthers with a bitter laugh. Yes, we quarreled, and he knocked me down. I am level with him on that, anyhow. Then I lost sight of him. That was only picked up with this outcast padre here. I found out they had set up housekeeping together at this place on the line that she had to pass for the station. I kept my eye on her after that, for I knew there was some devilry in the wind. I saw them from time to time, for I was anxious to know what they were after. Two days ago, Woodley came up to my house with this cable, which showed that Ralph Smith was dead. He asked me if I would stand by the bargain. I said I would not. He asked me if I would marry the girl myself and give him a share. I said I would willingly do so, but that she would not have me. He said, 
Let us get her married first, and after a week or two, she may see things a bit different. I said I would have nothing to do with violence. So he went off cursing, like the foul-mouthed blackguard that he was, and swearing that he would have her yet. She was leaving me this weekend, and I had got a trap to take her to the station, but I was so uneasy in my mind that I followed her on my bicycle. She had got a start, however, and before I could catch her, the mischief was done. The first thing I knew about it was when I saw you two gentlemen driving back in her dog-cart. Holmes rose and tossed the end of his cigarette into the grate. "'I have been very obtuse, Watson,' said he. "'When in your report you said that you had seen the cyclist as you thought arrange his necktie in the shrubbery, that alone should have told me all. However, we may congratulate ourselves upon a curious and in some respects a unique case. I perceive three of the county constabulary in the drive, and I am glad to see that the little ostler is able to keep pace with them. So it is likely that neither he nor the interesting bridegroom will be permanently damaged by their morning's adventures. I think, Watson, that in your medical capacity you might wait upon Miss Smith and tell her that if she is sufficiently recovered, we shall be happy to escort her to her mother's home. If she is not quite convalescent, you will find that a hint that we were about to telegram to a young electrician in the Midlands would probably complete the cure. As to you, Mr. Carruthers, I think that you have done what you could to make amends for your share in an evil plot. There is my card, sir, and if my evidence can be of help in your trial, it shall be at your disposal. In the whirl of our incessant activity, it has often been difficult for me, as the reader has probably observed, to round off my narratives and to give those final details which the curious might expect. Each case has been the prelude to another, and the crisis once over, the actors have passed forever out of our busy lives. I find, however, a short note at the end of my manuscript dealing with this case, in which I have put it upon record that Miss Violet Smith did indeed inherit a large fortune, and that she is now the wife of Cyril Morton, the senior partner of Morton and Kennedy, the famous Westminster electricians. Williamson and Woodley were both tried for abduction and assault, the former getting seven years, the latter ten. Of the fate of Mr. Carruthers, I have no record, but I am sure that his assault was not viewed very gravely by the court, since Woodley had the reputation of being a most dangerous ruffian, and I think that a few months were sufficient to satisfy the demands of justice. Something else you guys got to check out is the uh, merch store. So link is also down below in the show notes. That's really cool. Uh, great way to support the podcast and get some awesome uh, designs that they're hand, hand drawn by yours truly. So <laughs> if you like uh, handcrafted type stuff, check it out. Um, I have a few of those items that I wear and uh, they're really cool. Really cool designs, uh, if I do say so, and they uh, get some luck. So check them out. And then uh, thank you, as always, to our patrons for supporting the show. If you want to become a patron, just go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com and uh, check that out there thank you guys for listening and remember the best way to support the podcast is just to tell other people that you know about the podcast get them subscribed to it let them listen to a couple episodes and uh, they'll be uh, hooked and have a new favorite podcast too all right thanks guys and we'll talk to you next week